Welcome to the Endurance Podcast. My name's Mark Lathwaite, and I'm here with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be talking about what's new in the world of endurance sports, and we'll also be telling you how you can achieve your best on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, boys. Uh, I'm up here in Wigan, and I have to say the weather is pretty stunning. Sun's out, cracking the flags. What's the weather like where you are, Mike? It's beautiful. We've had two or three days of absolutely glorious sunshine in in Wales, um, which is probably the full extent of our summer. So I'm expecting the rain to come back by the weekend. And uh, Ian, is it tropical where you are? Yeah, same here in Birmingham. Might be the only time we speak when it's sunny in all three locations. Yeah, and along with the sunshine, we've got a fantastic few weeks of sports on the television as well. First of all, Tour de France, best three weeks of the year. And then also we've got Wimbledon on at the same time. Um, Ian, are you you a bit of a tennis fan or have you got the typical hand-eye coordination of an ultra runner? Yeah, uh, I like watching it. (laughs) I'm not so good when I get on the court. What about you, Mike? You strike me as a chap who can do a bit of serve and volley. Back in the day, I was known to flash a racket around or two, but um, it's, it's quite interesting because as you get into endurance sports and you just naturally deviate away from those things, I've done less and less. And now being a dad with the kids getting a little bit older, you find yourself banging balls around and swinging clubs and rackets much more. So, so hopefully it comes back a little bit. Yeah, the key is at our age not to change direction suddenly. It's just an injury waiting to happen, isn't it? Just keep moving forwards in a straight line without changing direction and we should be okay. Of course, the other thing that's been doing the rounds uh, on social media and dominating the news is a heat wave on the continent. And if there's one thing we Brits love, it's panicking about a heat wave when the temperature goes above 13 degrees. Uh, but I had friends doing Ironman Frankfurt the other weekend and it was 40 degrees during the race. So, of course, by the time they got to the run, they were absolutely baking and being pasty Brits were not the best at it. And uh, I'm not sure what the weather forecast holds for the next few weeks, but uh, Ian, um, are you okay exercising in the heat or do you prefer the cooler climates? I actually had a a very difficult time at Ironman Austria back in 2003 in similar conditions, Um, but I I generally struggle until I adapt and then I'm okay. So as long as I do make sure I get the adaptation in there, I'm okay. So I just need to find some heat so I can do that. So, so when you say get adaptations, I presume you're not going abroad to warmer climates. You're using saunas or you're using extra layers of clothing and things like that. Yeah, making sure that I'm getting sessions in when it's hot conditions or simulating hot conditions. And then um, one way you can sort of promote the adaptation is following a, a run or a bike ride with a hot bath or a sauna, something like that, to speed up the adaptation. But not having a drink while you're doing it. So I do that as well. And uh, Mike, what about you? Are you a lover of warm conditions when you're exercising? So, so as someone who's entered MDS for next year, this probably comes out a little bit of a surprise, but I'm one of the worst people you'll ever find in the heat. I do not function well in the heat as, a, as, um, as an everyday thing. Walking around, just sweating, it's not something I'm comfortable with. And I'm not great exercising, but very similar to Ian, it's all about adapting. 
Um, I've been lucky in the past to do it inverted commas professionally and, and be able to get to warmer environments and acclimatize properly. Um, that doesn't happen too many times. And obviously it's not something that we can, can trust a lot of the time. So um, very similar strategies, just trying to get used to it a little bit more. I do probably slightly different to Ian. I've gone down the avenue now of um, trying to, I, because of job with me, I spend a lot of time looking at the research as it's coming out. And whereas we all thought it used to be body temperature, basically was was the key factor. We know now that sort of um, staying cool and the cardiovascular risk that being dehydrated and warm brings. So um, now, because it's very hard for me to find the time and the facilities to acclimatize properly, I tend to now try to do it where I limit dehydration more than I used to. So I try to, to limit how much I'm dehydrating to limit the effect the heat has on me or just to use some simple strategies to stay cool. So pouring myself with some water and running in the shade and the, the clothing that I wear being a bit more appropriate for the conditions. So I've, I've changed slightly. I used to be very much like Ian, um, but now I think more about trying to stay hydrated because that seems to be where the research is saying is the big factor. It's not so much about raising your body temperature. It's the, the, the perfect storm is raising your body temperature and being dehydrated. Yeah, I mean, the subject of hydration itself is an interesting one. If you look at how it's evolved over the last 20 years, when I was racing 20 years ago, we just told to drink as much as possible. And if you um, if you felt thirsty, then you're already dehydrated and it was too late. So it's drinking to prevent feeling thirsty. But the problem with that is there was just no switch off. So we were just drinking, drinking too much. Um, and then well, 10 years ago or so, uh, we started to see deaths due to hyponatremia at major marathons because people were drinking so much fluid, they were diluting the body salts. Um, and then Tim Noakes brought out the book Waterlogged, which kind of sent people the other way with the, the, the message in the book was that really we just didn't need to drink that much fluid. So people went the opposite direction for me, just didn't drink enough and were becoming dehydrated. And I think it's only now really it's starting to become stabilized again where people are drinking the correct amounts uh, and the correct requirements of water and salt to actually be hydrated. So it's gone from one extreme to the other extreme and now it seems to be stabilizing and back to normal. Uh, I don't know what you think about that, Ian. Did you, uh, are you a, a Tim Noakes fan? Did you get a chance to read that book? I certainly read that book and took a lot from it. And I think there's a lot of sense in there, but I think it has, I agree with you, it has led to some under drinking. But I, I also think that it depends on the length of the endurance event that you're partaking in. Because I think if you're doing something up to like road marathon length, you can probably get away with a fair amount of dehydration. Yeah. And actually, it can probably have some performance benefits because obviously you're lighter than if you're trying to take on um, more water. But you go to the longer distances, it starts to catch up with you and also affects your nutrition as well. So I think yeah. staying on top of the hydration, it becomes even more important when you get to the longer distances, both yeah. for the sort of dehydration issues, but also in terms of nutrition. Yeah, and I guess the other thing we've we've talked there about becoming acclimatized and what you can do to prep yourself beforehand. But the big thing is, if you turn up on race day and it's forty degrees, how do you how do you adapt your strategy on race day? Because the reality is that how you adapt your strategy on race day is what's going to have the biggest impact on your race performance. Yeah, and when it comes to race day, I'm very much for the individual just. Getting that pacing right is probably the big strategy. If you, it, it, it takes pride sometimes, but if your race strategy needs to change yeah. because of the heat, then that's probably the, the most sensible plan. 
Yeah, I think it's fair to say most people go into a race, don't they, with a with a goal or a time in mind and it could be blowing a gale or it could be scorching hot on the day, but it's really hard for them to get out of that mindset, that, that time that they're going for. Yeah, and you know, because the, the mindset is is formed from a goal, a target, a programme of training, but those things come as well with financial implications to commit into races and the commitments of time away from family and friends. So that pressure just gets ramped up and you turn up on that start line and think, you know, and a lot of these guys these days doing it for charity and they're setting themselves targets to raise the funds for. So, yeah, there's a host of, of things that can end up becoming issues of why people find it hard to adjust pacing. But, you know, there'll always be another race. And, and I'm not, and, and I don't want to come across as someone who's saying, change your goals every race. You know, I'm, I'm the worst for trying to make sure I get to my goals. But, um, but perhaps getting around in a time that's not the time you wanted is always going to be better than a DNF. Yeah. So, uh, so if, that's, if that has to happen now and again, then yeah. it's probably, probably a wise thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I've had this conversation with Ian a few times about the difference between people who are goal-orientated rather than being process-orientated. I mean, if the conditions are bad, the reality is you've just got to turn up and go through the processes and do the right things. And, you know, the time will be what the time will be and it'll probably be the best time for you that you could possibly achieve on that day. Uh, but Ian, what kind of advice would you be giving in that situation? Well, I think it becomes even more important to uh, to focus on the process goals, doesn't it? Because it's it's really difficult to establish what might be realistic performance goals when you've got conditions that you never train in, and you never so you don't know what might be a realistic time for yourself on the bike in an Ironman in in forty degrees heat. You don't know what might be realistic, you know, for the run leg. So, but if you can focus on the processes in terms of you know looking at heart rate monitoring. Um, power output and also taking in uh, into con uh, taking in uh, consideration how you're actually feeling, monitoring that, but also processes in terms of hydration, nutrition, um, and focus less on the time. Then I think you can still put together a decent performance and at least achieve the performance that was possible for you on that day. But beforehand, it's probably very difficult for you to know what that might be. Um, I, I think you'll probably remember maybe three or four years ago we had a really hot uh, one for the Lakeland 100 but we actually saw a very high completion rate that year and I think it just led to a lot of people forgetting what the times were that they were going for and then just focusing on the actual, you know, taking part and enjoying it and really monitoring how they were feeling and what they needed to take on board in terms of hydration. It never dropped below about 19, 20 degrees overnight and it was in the 30s during the day but 60 70 percent of people finished that year um so it can actually help people to set uh, you know to forget about those times that they might hang themselves on in terms of you know having really poor performances and just you know going after that time no matter what they're feeling like uh yeah, yeah. The yeah i think i think sometimes people when the weather changes dramatically people feel that it's something they can't control and they feel the control the controllables aspect's been removed from them and actually you can still control what you can control yeah. about what you're doing in that race or training session yeah that's so right. it, it might be different things you were thinking of controlling on the day or a different way to control the same things but it's easy to adjust well, yeah. i think it can push people towards controlling the things they've actually got more control over in terms yeah. of the hydration uh, you know monitoring their intensity level yeah, rather than a set time or a pace on the watch, things that they're actually, 
yeah, you can control it, and you can force yourself to run at that pace or ride at that speed. But your body's telling you that you're working too hard and you're ignoring those signals, whereas you actually tune into the more important signals uh, and all the other processes that you can control much yeah. more um, because they're the ones that you actually um, can access at the, in those conditions. Yeah, I mean, I, I was having a conversation actually last week with a guy who was racing Ironman and we were talking about this exercise in the heat and the conversation was revolving around that you should focus on racing at the right intensity rather than racing at output. So the difference between them is the intensity is telling you how hard your body's working and the output's what you're producing. So your pace is an output, your heart rate is an intensity. The heart rate's showing how hard your body's working and the pace is what you achieve as a consequence of that intensity. Uh, but even cycle power meters, cycle power meters are an output measurement. So your heart rate is telling you how hard your body's working. Your power meter is telling you what you're producing as a consequence of working that hard. And really, when you're exercising in the heat, it's a real danger to race to outputs. If you race to power or race to, to pace, um, then you're far more chance of overdoing it. And, you know, the reality is if, you, if you're racing when it's really hot or you're racing at altitude or something like that, your heart rate can always be very high, but power output or pace will be lower than you expect it to be. Um, so you've got to be careful what you're using as your gauge on, on race day. The other thing I find remarkable as well is that people, I think on race day, people are anxious. They just, they, they stop thinking sensibly. And, and sometimes you have to literally get people to take a step back and just that, to understand the simple fact that everybody will be slower. So you may have gone into that race wanting to do 12 hours. You may now have to look at 12 and a half, which is more realistic to get round in the, in the conditions but everybody will be half an hour slower. It's not just you. Uh, and people seem to just completely ignore that fact. Your finishing position is probably not going to change. But if you try and go for that 12 hour, then, you know, you may end up with a 13 and a half, 14 hour finish time. So, so yeah, making sensible decisions are often very difficult on race day because people aren't thinking sensibly on race day. I think, yeah, I agree. I think um, people tend to gravitate towards the indices that are directly linked to their overall goals. So if they're there to you know, do a 10 hour Ironman, then mm. pace when they're running or power when they, that's something they can equate directly to a set split for that leg. But actually the thing that's telling them how the body's coping and how the body's responding is much closer is heart rate or even your perceived, perceived exertion and how you're feeling. Yeah. But people tend to ignore those signals and then gravitate to the ones that they link to the outcome but um unfortunately that can uh, you know three hours into the bike ride or two or three hours into the run can have very awful consequences as we all know yeah and to be honest while we're on the subject of racing in the heat uh, i'm going to go back to mike, something mike said earlier on um I, I noticed on twitter mike that you were you got a place in mds and i was going to bring this up um so congratulations for getting in first of all because that's difficult enough so uh, how's your training going? Have you started yet? No, no, which might be. So I, I think um, I, uh, it's been really interesting. The journey of getting older as an endurance athlete and potentially wiser, but just that experience of realizing just how much you need to apply and which way works best for you. So mm. I, I'm giving myself a six-month program um i i'm in a sort of pre-training program to prepare myself for the six-month program yeah. but there's very little, there's very little structure to it right now i'm not really worrying about it i'm spending most of my time planning the ins and outs of the six months 
um, yeah. which which prep races, which weekends I'm going to go away and do big training blocks, and, and potentially looking at some overseas camps. But but no, nothing nothing too much. It's still preparation. Still, um, I still think what what's the Abraham Lincoln one? If you if you give me um, six hours to chop down a tree, I'll spend the first four sharpening the axe. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm very much sharpening my axe right now, trying to make sure that all the cards are laid out so I know exactly what I need to do. Um, and it's quite interesting because I, they've started a closed group on Facebook now for, for the entrance for next year. And there's people with posting um, beach runs with backpacks on now that they're doing. And, yeah. you know, great, you know, if they want to do it and it's what works for them, fine. But I, I would just look at it from my point of view and just go, I just don't need to be doing that yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's actually so not, excitement to guess, isn't it? People straight out the door and want to... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. you know, and again, it brings... I get why some people some people might only have access to things like beaches and, and the heat stuff now, so it's it's getting ahead of the game um, for them. But for me, uh, let's spend probably three months of, of just building mileage and conditioning and then transitioning that. I, I'm really lucky that I literally have about... 10 beaches within 10 minutes of me yeah. so yeah. including quite a famous one down here for sort of big dunes and sort of sandy sandy banks so so the actual terrain and then i've only got to go an hour the other way i'm in the brecon beacon so i can get up there and put some mileages in yeah. so uh, so yeah i'm just pretty much formulating what my plan of attack will be but i'm not sweating it too much yet no pun intended have you done anything yeah. similar in the past mike <laughs> and yeah, I've done some similar stuff in the past, but the diff, the my my I'm starting to think of this now very much as part two of my endurance life. Everything in my twenties and early thirties, which was pretty nuts at the time, I was churning lots of stuff out on a regular basis. Then kids came along seven years ago, and I think I did a solo swim around Jersey in 2012, and that was pretty much my last big thing, last big solo. So it's sort of right. A new, a new me now, an older me, a little bit heavier me, a little bit more achy me. So, um, so it's time to just refocus and attack things a slightly different way. So there's a little bit of trepidation there of of what what version 2.0 might have in inside it. It might not net two new versions tend to be improvements. I don't know if this is going to be an improved me in any shape or form, but I think I am less um, head headstrong and impulsive with my stuff I, I definitely feel that the preparation side is a better me mm. which hopefully means that when the training kicks in I'm, I'm in a better place to apply to that so yeah. so time will tell I'm certainly on my Facebook channel is going to be documenting the whole journey to, to show people how I've approached it from the planning stages to the training and, and everything else so so hopefully it's if it works out brilliant if it doesn't work out it's, it's going to be a good or a bad example to to show people how I've approached it but, um, yeah, no, no real training as yet. Yeah, well, rest assured, Mike, we'll be checking in every two weeks and keeping you honest, making sure you're getting your training done. Uh, Ian, unfortunately, only has a couple of weeks to go to the Lakeland 100. How's your training, Ian? Yeah, I should start training soon, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Is this number eight? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, number eight. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wrong. Number eight, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Is your training going well this year? Training's gone gone well, yeah. I, I did my usual uh, train for the London Marathon on the road and then transitioned to the trails. But this year, I kept in a bit more of the trails, did all the recce's this year and sort of kept my hand in, if you like, on the trails and the hills. 
so that I could transition quicker and you don't experience the, the really leg soreness when you first start doing the real um, amounts of ascent and descent. But yeah, I focus a lot of my training on that in terms of getting as much climbing and descending as I can just to condition the legs because I think I've already got the aerobic conditioning from the uh, the marathon training. That that seems to work well for me. Um, yeah. I, I always put one decent sized ultra in and training as well. I did that last weekend. So I did the 10 peaks up in the lakes last Saturday, which was just, well, it's 14 hours, 45 minutes for me. It's um, 17,000 feet of ascent, 46 miles. Um, and that's 53 minutes quicker than I've done it before. And it was a hot day Saturday. So yeah, going well. You get that a lot. I think that's that's one of the things with ultra running, especially with the up and the down and the, the downhill descending and the eccentric contraction and the damage it causes. Yeah. That the reality is that you know you can get people who are super fit, but the yeah. legs are just destroyed, and you've you've got to bulletproof yourself. You have to be conditioned, yeah. and you know that long distance, that mileage. It's 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 as much about just hardening your legs, really, isn't it? Is, yeah. it? is it is about you know the VO2 max is irrelevant if your legs are completely smashed to smashed to pieces. But I think what what time did you run at London as well this year, Ian? Two hours fifty and twenty six seconds. Yeah. Yeah, and twenty six seconds. Yeah. <sighs> Close. Right. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's close and only 17 seconds off my PB, so I'm hanging in there as an old man at 46. 46, are you now? I say, because that's, that's one of the good things. I mean, I see with a lot of ultra runners, I don't want to obviously offend anybody on this podcast, yeah. but when they switch to ultras, they, they do start to shuffle and plod a bit, you know? And they're very good at moving slow for a long period yeah. of time, but I, I like the fact that you're still knocking out the 250 marathons at, at, at London before you know, and then turn up to, to finish 100 mile ultra. So you've still got that, that pace, which obviously it helps your economy yeah. over speeds, doesn't it? You know, if you, if you find it comfortable running sub seven minute miles for a marathon, then when you're running at eight or nines, it should be extremely comfortable. That's it, yeah. yeah. No, that's a lot of the philosophy that underpins what I do is that half the year I spend on the road trying to keep the speed and uh, the road pace there and then switch across to the trails and just, yeah, Spend about 12 weeks just smashing my legs up as much as I can to yeah, to, yeah. Uh, to condition them. Like you say, bulletproof them. That's This block of training is all about that. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, we'll find out in three weeks, won't we? We will, yeah. yeah. So it, it's time now to welcome our special guest to the show. And we're very, very fortunate to have Ambleside AC runner Paul Tierney with us. Um, if you are an ultra runner or fell runner or trail runner yourself, um, you will no doubt know that Paul recently set a new record for completing all of the Wainwrights in the Lake District uh, whilst raising money for the uh, for the charity Mind. Um, and he pretty much just had uh, a whole nation of trail runners engrossed in this challenge, dot-watching him, following on social media. Um, so, yeah, it was an amazing story. So, Paul, first of all, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's, it, it's really great to have you here. Thanks, Mark. That's uh, very um, overstated intro, but thanks very much. Yeah, well, I don't think the intro is overstated at all, Paul, and I don't think anybody else listening will think the same either. Um, the um, So I know you through Lakeland 100, and of course we met in those early years when you came and raced with, uh, there was you and Terry Conway, and there was the um, the other chap, Barry, who was a nutritionist. I remember the three of you coming over and, you know, being right up there at the front of the race. That's right, yeah. Uh, Barry lives in Kerry now down the south of Ireland. He was... Um... Uh, the first time he came over, he was in. He was actually located in Loughborough, so yeah, he's, uh, he's back in Ireland now. Yeah, yeah, and there was a whole crew of you came over, and you were, uh, and and obviously, you know, 
smashing the hell out of all the ultras at that time. You know, Terry's running this year as, as well. Terry's made a comeback and he's doing the 50. Oh, he did say, yeah. Because um, originally, I think he was half thinking about doing the 100 again. But um, yeah. I think because uh, his, his Achilles is probably still a little achy on um, technical ground. And um, yeah. yeah, he's been doing a bit on the road, hasn't he? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, should, be, should be good. Still holds a record for the 100. Oh, um, yeah. No one's gotten near it, has it? Yet, but, uh, so it's, it's great to see him back and see if we can convince him to do the, uh, to the 100 mile next year. And uh, yeah, it's good to see him all back. So, uh, Paul, could you just kind of outline to people a little bit about the Wainwrights? People who don't know what the Wainwrights challenge is, can you just outline a little bit about it, the distance, and the terrain, the altitude and so on? Yeah. Um, so, uh, a Wainwright is um, a fell in the Lake District that Arthur Wainwright included in his uh, collection of guidebooks. So there were seven books written and they were categorised by the location of the fells. So northern fells, eastern fells, far eastern fells, etc. So um, he wrote those in the 60s and 70s as far as I know. And he basically just picked his favourite hills. So um, there was no height uh, specifications or, or anything like that. It was just whatever he felt were um, hills that he liked so it and there's 214 of them and it includes most of the well-known fells in the lake district uh the original person to to try and do them all at once was uh, chris bland back in 1981 and he um tried to do it as they were laid out in the books so he would pick a book and do that and then uh, go on the next day and do another book. And he was raising money for Borrowdale Church Roof, actually. And um, he, he used to start every day at a different church. So that probably wasn't the optimal way to do the the challenge. It was, you know, it was a bit, um, it, it just didn't, uh, the logistics of it were, were quite difficult. So he would have lost time because of that. Um, and then Alan Heaton came along, did it in nine days. And Joss Naylor, the following year in 1986, I think, uh, broke his record and did seven days and one hour and then took another 28 years I think it was before Steve Birkinshaw came along and, and did it in 2014 and he set a new record and did six days and 13 hours but he had come up with a, a, a better route than, than Joss so he had, he had really studied the maps and tried to improve the, the route and well it, he seemed to to improve it, I think he took a few, a few miles and a, a bit of elevation off it. So, um, and I, I basically just copied Steve's route. I, there was a couple of little tweaks, but um, I wasn't going to try and be smarter than Steve when it comes to route finding because he's that's his thing and he's really, really good at it. And um, it would have been a whole other job for me to do, and I had enough to do anyway. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So your finish time, Paul? What was your Paul, finish? Uh, I did six days, six hours, five minutes. And the total distance and altitude? Uh, it's around 320 miles and 36,000 metres of ascent. See, that's a proper run, isn't it? <laughs> well, it was a fucking crawl. Oh, sorry, sorry, it was a crawl. It was a, sorry, I'm not meant to, to curse. I, I did a, a podcast with, um, with James Elson and he was sort of egging me on to, to curse. He was trying to... Uh, I don't know. He was trying to keep it nice and informal, and apologies. Um, but uh, the 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 uh, thing about it was, it, you know, it's 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 not just a run. It, it was hiking, and and it got quite slow by the end of it. You know, it's 
it's probably a bit misleading to call it a run, but it's it was running and hiking and crawling at times. So yeah, uh, well, it is an amazing feat of endurance. That's what it is for a start. But and there was a reason that the event or the the, the challenge that you set yourself. There was a reason behind that as well. With uh, Chris, do you want to just talk a little bit about that and tell people what what drove you on to do it? Uh, yes, I mean originally. You know, I, I I wanted to do it for myself because I, I I like doing stuff like this, and it was another challenge, and and um, that's what I like doing. But um, it took on a bit more significance, yeah, because uh, Chris Sterling, who's a very well-known triathlete uh, nationally, and um, he he's from Ambleside, runs with Ambleside AC, and he he passed away in April, and he had struggled with his mental health for for a number of years, and um, so. It just it just made sense to to try and do something to I suppose remember him and and honour him. He should have been um, there. He would have been supporting. He would have been out on the field with me. And um, his his partner Joe was involved in the the um, logistics during the week of the the attempt and and leading up to it. So it was just a, a, a good fit, I guess. It, it was it was something that I knew would attract a, a bit of attention. So. We tried to raise some money for mine, the mental health charity, and um, and we managed to raise quite a bit of money. So, uh, it um, yeah, it just I wish it wasn't the case that I was doing it for mine. I wish Chris was there, obviously, but um, um as things stood, it was nice to to try and uh, do something to to honour his memory. Yeah, and and you had a fantastic response as well. I mean, I know that you had your teammates at Ambleside out there, you know, planning to support you for the for the challenge, but. Um, when I was looking on social media, and I think this is the case, if you're a runner, then all your friends on social media tend to be runners as well. So I just kept seeing these videos of you running the different legs. And, you know, rather than having a couple of supporters with you on the leg, it seemed like you had this army of supporters. There would be like 20 people, you know, following behind you at times. And uh, it, was, it was just amazing to see how people uh, got on board with it. I mean, did it, did it surprise you, the, the amount of support that it generated and how many people got involved? Yeah, I, I mean, I was really surprised. I I knew that I was going to get enough support because I had been planning for uh, since about I I probably told started to to tell people from about March onwards, and um, I you know you set up your WhatsApp groups or whatever it is, and and you try and get a little bit of um, commitment from people, and and I did quite quickly uh, drum up a bit of support, and so I knew that I would have enough support, but I didn't expect it to end up being you know the way it was so like there was times when I was meant to have three people on a leg and and I had six seven and and sometimes even more and um and then people would join in along the way and our people had just come out to to meet me on top of a fell or or even leave you know a Mars bar and a can of coke in a you know on top of the cairn on on a fell and like that definitely wasn't something I expected to happen and um it's it's part of the the local fell running scene, I guess, you know, if you do a Bob Graham um, or a Justin Hero Challenge or something like that, you'll, everyone is generally keen to, to help and if they can. And um, that's the ethos up here. And um, it, it was no different for this, but I suppose because it was six days, it had time to build a bit of momentum. And um, dot watching is a national pastime now when it comes to these kind of <laughs> challenges and races. And people love what, I mean, it's, it, it sounds quite boring, doesn't it? Watching a dot on a screen, but I guess um, it's it kind did. of yeah, it is yeah, uh, and and that probably generated a bit of interest as well. So uh, it was a real surprise, but obviously a nice surprise as well. 
And there were so many videos doing the rounds of coming into Keswick as well to finish at Moot Hall. And uh, I'm surprised we like the Tour de France. I'm surprised we could even get through. That was just an amazing, seeing all the crowds in Keswick and the people that had turned up to, to welcome you. And then you ran up the steps to Moot Hall. And was it your mum and dad that were there? Yeah, uh, my mum and dad had come over on, so I started on the Friday morning yeah. the 14th, and they had come on the Tuesday, I think, of the following week, so they were there for a couple of days, and um, I didn't know they were coming, I, I think Sarah, my girlfriend, knew they were coming, but they just met me at Dockray, so you'll know Dockray from the 100, um, yeah. that was one of the, the points where I uh, finished a leg, and, and they were there in the pub, and um, that was just a lovely surprise, and yeah. Uh, a big, uh, a big uh, lift, and then to have him obviously at the finish was brilliant. And yeah. um, I think Jeremy Heaton, who has done a lot of help with Nikki Spinks for her double BG and Paddy and, and Ramsey, she um, was involved with me as well, and, and was absolutely brilliant. I mean, you can tell who has experience of doing these type of things. She just knew exactly what to say, and she uh, was just perfect at the job. But um, she had actually cleared a the way she'd gone around to all the market stalls and, and kind of got the word about what was happening. So she'd managed to kind of clear a bit of a, uh, a path through the, the centre of town. So, um, because it was a bit busy yeah, because of the market and stuff. So um, she had, yeah, just warned people, I suppose. <laughs> and then getting a hug from Joss Naylor at the end, that, you know you've made it when you get a hug from Joss Naylor. So that's... <laughs> well, I think... I think I hugged him. I think he was a bit surprised. He probably handshake would have done him, I think, but I didn't know what I was doing. Was <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he's amazing. Nice. He, 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 um, he just said some really nice things and he and seemed really happy. And uh, I've never met him properly. I met him on the Saturday, the second day of my attempt. I was in Wasdale and uh, one of the lads from Achille Raddy Climbing Club, um, they have a hut in Wasdale. Yeah. And he'd be friendly with Joss, so he had told him and, and Joss had come down and um, those guys were brilliant as well. And it, it's just a continuing theme, you know, everyone got behind it or, or at least that's how it seemed to me. And yeah. like the yeah. guys in the in the hut just couldn't do enough for me. Um, they just it, everything about it went really, really well. There was downs, obviously, and there was things that went wrong. But like in general, it was like a dream come true in terms of how well it went. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So proper. We talk about bucket list challenges. Well, that's one right there. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know Mike's uh, doing MDS next year, so I know Mike's got some questions on training and preparation. Mm. <laughs> Massive congrats, Paul. That was so inspirational watching you doing that. Nice. <laughs> so yeah. I think what always um, always attracts me when I see challenges because of my professional background is to try and find out more about the training people did, some of the sort of injury prevention strategies that you might have gone through in that build-up? Yeah. Um, so I, I suppose um, in the last five, six, seven years even, um, I've gradually uh, increased mileage and increased distance of, of the different races that I've been doing. So um, that in itself probably increase my resistance to to injury and i think that has a massive bearing on um on injury you know so there's obviously you can do various different uh prehab exercises and um strength training in the gym and, and and all that stuff but ultimately it comes down to getting the 
the amount of load and and the the amount of training volume right i think and, and recovering properly and um doing doing as much as you can uh without you know crossing that line and and breaking down yeah i think i think i think you're absolutely right some of the some of the big work that's flying around the world now is is by tim gabbett and his famous sort of statement is it's not how much training you do it's how you get to that training load um and, and certainly events like what you've just gone through they start so far in advance to what a lot of people a lot of people's first questions is how many weeks have you trained for that yeah when actually obviously it's it, it's a lot lot bigger than that um, and how are you recovering any any injuries any niggles as a result of the whole challenge uh, so I'm, I'm back running since last friday so about a week of, of running so I, I had a week of doing almost nothing you know just walking about the place walking the dog cycling to work and back and not really doing anything and then managed to start doing some jogging last friday and i've sort of continued that uh, most days and, and um but when i finished like in the last two days of the the run my knee got quite sore so the medial side of my knee uh was just really really sore on the downhills it was fine on the uphills and um it just made descending really really slow and difficult and my achilles had um swelled up on the same on the same leg uh but it was it was quite high up the achilles so it wasn't insertional you know where you'd be quite worried about it it was and it was quite acute as well it, there was no issue with it before the the run so i wasn't too worried about it but um anyway it settled down massively like it was i was like uh someone with fat ankles yeah the thing the whole lower part of my just you know around the ankle and the achilles and the foot was just totally swollen and it, it's just completely gone down and i had lots of help with that so i go basically had guys from body rehab there and and um, in stavely they're really good guys the physios and sports therapists there and um been to see cat a couple of times this last week and and things have just gradually um gotten back to normal and um you know i uh i think when it's something that long you're you're gonna get some sort of a whether it's a niggle or a real injury or, or whatever I, I knew i was going to get something so it, it didn't worry me maybe as much as it would if i had got it in the lead up to the the whole thing you know yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably a perfect segue for me to hand over to Ian to chat about some of that psychology of how you prepare and go through those events. Cool. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, hi, Paul. Um, hey. Yeah, I'm, obviously, Mike talked to you about there about your sort of physical preparation. I was just wondering if there was anything you did in terms of psychological preparation, anything, because obviously this is something that's probably out of most people's uh comfort zone so anything you did differently on in that respect uh yeah well whether it's different to what other people do uh, probably not but i i um i definitely did and i believe a big time in in preparing mentally um for this type of stuff and it's basically i've gotten good results when i've prepared mentally and i've gotten bad ones when i've not prepared mentally and um so i did put a lot of work into it and i i i like um whether it's totally correct or it's the finished product or not but i like samuel marcora's psychobiological yeah. model vegan and um the, the way that is put to me it makes sense and and whether it's totally right or not it works when i use elements of that to uh 
you know so like if i if i'm uh suffering i might smile even just something simple like that and yeah feel a little bit better immediately but i suppose the, the biggest thing that i did or, or or that i feel helps is to think about all the things that are going to go wrong and how you're going to deal with that when they go wrong and then when it does actually happen you, you it's almost like you've dealt with it already and you you yeah. don't the way you might otherwise and um that's a massive uh i suppose comfort you know when 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 something does actually go wrong then you you, you just feel like you can deal with it and um, yeah you've already got strategies in place ready for when those things happen yeah what, what were some of those things what was the example have you got any examples of yeah, when those things happen. Um, I think, uh, well, something uh, like an injury. So, like, you know, the Achilles starting to swell up. I knew that we had really good people in place to deal with injuries. So, like, a couple of physios who were, were knocking about during the week and then some guys doing sports massage as well. And I knew that um, th- those guys were going to be able to you know, reassure me or, or, or do something that was going to be, have a positive effect. And, and because I had trust in them, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask just anyone to, to help me. And I, I believed in what they were doing. And um, that in itself just meant that, right. Okay. My Achilles is sore, but it's not the end of the world because it's going to be fine. And, and I'm going to have someone to, to uh, look after it because I've picked really good people to, to help. Um, I suppose another aspect might have been um that there was the third night was really bad uh, the weather just turned and and um really really difficult night and i i sort of never really even though it was touch and go as to you know the conditions were that bad and the nav was really really difficult and people were getting cold and and it was touch and go as to whether you know maybe we should have dropped down and, and waited till it um till it kind of passed but because i knew it was Dan Doxbury who was doing the nav on that leg and he's a local guy and he's, he runs at Ambleside AC and I knew he had recorded, I knew he um, knew what he was doing and um, that in itself allowed me to kind of relax a bit and uh, not worry too much. I had I had thought about having bad weather and, and the effect it would have on me and and I just, I suppose, in, in the fells you can kind of get really worried about bad weather because it can really hamper your efforts but I had I had sort of reason that well I'll just have extra kit I'll have um I'll change it before it gets to a stage where I'm too wet and um I'll deal with the problem immediately rather than letting it kind of fester and, and, and get worse and worse so so that was something I'd thought about before and and it just means you have confidence you know where where you might not otherwise yeah now it sounds like you you obviously got a lot of good strategies in place but also having that strong team behind you, dealing with different aspects. So you've got people you're confident in terms of your navigation, but same when you've got the injuries, you've got people there that give you confidence that you can then, they can help you deal with those issues. But it seems like you're also restructuring your thoughts quite a lot in terms of when something hits, you turn that into a positive or you minimise the effect of it um, in terms of you know, thinking that the Achilles is something acute, it's not going to be long term. So trying to minimise the impact that they can have. Um, it obviously seems like they've been very effective for you. Was there anything that sort of cropped up that you weren't anticipating, anything that you hadn't planned for? Uh, uh, like, funnily enough, there the, the probably wasn't 
because because I had put more effort into this than than um, anything else I'd done. I would imagine, like thinking back, I, I definitely um, this whole year since January has been. I've thought of very little else outside of you know real life. Like, but uh, in terms of my running, this is the only thing that has occupied my mind, and um, and that meant that all these things were were sort of covered. Like, I had. From February onwards, I was going out recce in the route with a friend of mine from here, Neil McKenzie, and he he was really keen on it and and um, was you know looking at the route himself and trying to come up with better uh, lines and I I just felt like we had covered all bases and and because I've done lasted up to four days in the past, I all these bad feelings that you get and the negative thoughts and the sleepiness and sore stomach and um dehydration etc etc i i had experienced them all that nothing felt alien or, or different this time around it was very very similar and um and i knew i could come out the other side when i'd previously been like that so um again that just gave me uh confidence and and that's not always been the way for me like uh, mark whether he remembers or not i've, I've dnf'd in in the late 100 a couple of times i've um i've messed up other races i've just let my head get into a negative place and not dealt with it in time and and I've, because of that happening i've I've learned my lesson you know I've, I've learned to um manage that side of things a bit better now and um it seems to in general seems to have worked I still have crap races and um but i I haven't had too many dnfs since I've you know focused a bit more on the psychological side of things no, that's good. Um, I, I followed a bit of the media since, and uh, a couple of things you've mentioned there, I think you just briefly alluded to there. You, the sleep deprivation was something that you found really challenging, I understand. Is that right? Yeah, so it, I found it really, really challenging. But again, it was almost easier doing something like this than it was when I've done a race and you're out in the middle of nowhere on your own and you've got nothing except your own voice or your own thoughts to try and keep yourself awake whereas here I had uh, two or three people with me all the time and the conversation even if I wasn't involved in the conversation I was still listening to it or um, you know my occupied enough that it, it didn't feel like you know that horrible feeling when you're driving and you feel sleepy and you, you can't stay awake you know it didn't it didn't feel like that at any point and yeah um, that was down to yeah just having the company and also probably trying where possible to finish a day at about 1 or 2 a.m. and then get into bed for a couple of hours. Um, that, In general, that kind of worked. So whereas in the previous races, you might just go through the whole night and, and not stop at all, you know. So um, that helps with the sleep, with, with not falling asleep as well. So um, When you mentioned there in terms of that was your plan to sort of get in at sort of 1, 2 and then get some sleep, did, how strict were your goals in terms of what you were planning before? And did you have a set time in mind that was below what Steve Beckinshaw had done before? Or was that the goal just to beat that record? And how did you break that down in terms of goals for different days and uh, maybe the processes that you followed to try and hit those? Were you as specific as that in your planning? Um, so I, Steve had a very detailed schedule himself and, and he had like splits all right well sorry i had these actual splits to each fell to look back on mm. so it was as detailed as that whereas i kind of looked at his overall split for the for the legs so there was 24 separate legs and i looked at the overall time and i 
made a schedule for myself and it pretty much stuck to his overall or even slower but I then decreased the amount of rest stops or uh, the amount of time I was sleeping so um, and that's how I cut some time but I my my overall schedule was for six days 20 minutes that was the original schedule and my thoughts were that right I'm not really much better than Steve so I better rely on something else rather than my you know physical ability so I I decided to make a fairly optimistic schedule and then if I missed it well there was still a chance I'd break the record so uh, and that's the way it worked you know it was six hours over me or just over just under six hours over my own Mm. Uh, anticipated schedule but um it was still enough to to beat the record so uh and and i was i was pretty strict with the you know the stops and and the yeah the the breaks between legs and the breaks between days uh and because the the, the way i was gonna hopefully stay ahead of his time was um getting an extra leg done on the second night so he stopped at dudden that in the Dudden Valley on the second night, whereas I did the next leg that he he started the following morning. So, um, and then I was a leg ahead, sort of, um, starting the next day, and it kind of I managed to just about maintain that. And and then, um, oh, it just meant that there was one point on the I think it was the Tuesday night where, or sorry, it was the Monday night where um I got to Howtown again. Mark, you you know where that is, and um. The I was at Martindale Church there, and it was about half nine, so it was too early to sleep. But I was absolutely knackered, and I I knew I had another four hours to do. The next leg was about four hours, and um, so I had an hour stop there, and did kind of crack on. Whereas he would again, he would have stopped there that night. Um, so I knew if I didn't crack on, I would have been back to square one. I would have been back kind of level with him. And um, that, yeah, so I did get a bit uh, strict with myself there because I would have preferred to, to stop and sleep, but um, it just didn't. Really... Do you think that was a good strategy in terms of just getting slightly ahead? So it, in your own mind, you always had that little bit of um, comfort zone. Yeah, like, you know, I, I, I didn't know if I could break the record when I started. I wasn't, again, like I say, I'm not, um, my, my results will show that I'm not some elite runner. So I, I, I needed to, um, yes, have a, have a, a different uh, way of, of getting it done, I guess. So um, I knew I, I could keep going, but I didn't know I would be quick enough. So the, the rest stops were my, I suppose, key, really. I needed to keep them shorter than his. And uh, it mentally, uh, once I was ahead, it was a big positive. But at the same time, because anything could happen and there was still like three days left, I couldn't really uh, start thinking about even completing it, never mind breaking the record. And I didn't really think about that until, I didn't really think I was going to do it until I woke up the last morning and, and I was sort of, you know, I had whatever, 15, 16 hours to do the last two legs. Um, and I, I, I guess I thought then, yeah, it's, it's probably uh, going to work out, but um, yeah, I wasn't counting any chickens. And how about since? Have you been in terms of how you've been feeling, mood-wise, and everything? Is it have you been okay? Because I think Steve Berkinsale really suffered with a lot of fatigue following, didn't he? Yeah. So I, I think the worst of what Steve experienced was probably about a year later. So he 
he was knackered after it, which I think he'd expect yeah, to be. He was back racing by, I know he did ride around, which is in July. Um, so it was about a month later he was he was racing or a month and a half later. But he wasn't feeling himself. And then uh, I think by the following summer, he had started to run quite well again. And he was doing times that he would have done previously. But um, he, he sort of went off a cliff then, I think. It just I, Like I've spoken to him about it, but... I think it was his book that I read that in that it was actually about a year later where he really started to get those chronic fatigue type symptoms. And um, like I, at the moment, it's probably too early to tell, but I, I feel as knackered as I would expect to feel after something like this. Um, but it's improving every day. And, uh, you know, the first week was total write off. It was absolutely wrecked and um, had zero energy for training really except you know pootling along a bike to work and um this week is has been a lot better my sleep is improving all the time i'm not dreaming about i'm not waking up you know sweating thinking i'm on the side of a fell and um which did happen the first week and uh it's gradually getting better and i can run again and and, um yeah i'm not taking any again like i'm not i'm not taking it for granted and I, i i could well feel quite crap for the next few months and not really um, be able to race or whatever but I, I had sort of said to myself beforehand that I would uh, accept a six month layoff from running if I had to to if it meant you know yeah. completing I thought it was worth doing that and um, you know there's always something else you can do you can go swimming or cycling or whatever so um, yeah I'm not too worried but I would like to get back racing because that's what I prefer doing so um, sooner rather uh, than later I can sort an entry for the Lakeland if you want, Paul. It's only three weeks to the Lakeland 100. I can sort one of those for <laughs> if you want. Yeah. You know, I, I, if if I was a single man, I might say yes, but uh, I've got, um, I've, yeah, I've basically, <laughs> I'm not allowed. <laughs> so, um, Sarah's quite... I think if you uh, said yes, you'd be an end-up single. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, she'll listen to this, you see. So, um, no, I'm, uh, I'm not allowed to do it, and... Uh, it's probably probably for the best, isn't it? So um, yeah. <laughs> now, one thing I wanted to bring up, Paul, is your is your background in your your business, Missing Link Coaching. Um, you know, looking at your website, it seems that you're um you're very much into the kind of functional aspect of running. I know that's something that Mike's really interested in. So uh, I think Mike wanted to ask a few questions about that as well. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting, um, Paul. So one of the businesses that I work for, we did a lot of research with the public. And the number one thing that they look for when they're looking for therapists or coaches is someone who understands the sport. So with your background now and the achievements that you've done recently, do you find that you, when you do exercises yourself, it depends yourself, you use the principles that you coach others with. And then likewise, do you use the same principles with your athletes that you would use on yourself? Yeah. So I probably don't 100%. I don't treat, um, um, work with, with the same as myself because uh, well I know myself better than I know anyone and the athletes I work with know themselves better than um, than I do so I obviously I try and get to know them as well as I can but I try hopefully to create a kind of a two-way street where um, they're involved in in the decision making for themselves as well and um you know, it's it's a case of sometimes you know do what I say rather than 
what I do. So I do things that I probably wouldn't uh, encourage someone else to do, you know, like maybe come back and race too soon after um, another event or uh, I probably didn't put enough um, work into say some strength training this year. I think a little bit of it would have, would have been uh, beneficial, but at the same time, you have to kind of um, look at how much time you have and, and what's the most efficient use of your time. And, and for me, it was recce in the route and being very, very specifically training. So being on the route and logging miles at roughly the pace I would be doing in the, in the challenge, that was the number one goal for me. So if, if um, that's a long way around saying, uh, I generally try and um, yeah, do, use my experience in my coaching but but it's not um it's just one element of, of of what i do i guess i try and read a lot try and stay on top of um you know research and uh stuff like that so it it's it's informed by both i guess and it's important i think to have in in something like you know ultra trail running it's probably important to have some sort of experience of what it feels like to to do it but it's not the it's not the only um, important factor, of course. I mean, I could be a, a thick, you know, twat who doesn't have a, a, a clue about any of the physiology or any of that side of things, um, and I could be just someone who, you know, has done something like this, and people think, oh, he must know what he's doing. But that, that you know, yeah. that might be this. So, um, mm. yeah, I'm. I'm not. Um, obviously, I'm not a physio, so I don't. I try and send people when people come to me with. Um, you know, and they're trying to maybe improve how they run or they're trying to get a plan that gets them to the start line of whatever race and they've got niggles and injuries. I, I try and work with the, the, the people who I trust. So like in the local area, it's um, body rehab. They're, they're really, really good and I trust them and they're runners. They know what they're doing. And um, and I think that's important to find someone, for, for an athlete to find someone they trust that, that specializes in that particular area. And then it can be a, like a, a community of people dealing or looking after this person rather than me um, going above my pay grade and telling people what yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, one, when we knew you were coming on, I spent some time looking at the website and it was really interesting seeing the journey that you take your athletes through with the coaching side of it. Um, if you were, um, for those listeners who aren't familiar with, with your process in the business, could you just talk us through when a runner comes to you, how you manage them through the process of, of the introduction and the assessments and the coaching prescriptions? Yeah, so, well, first off, first off it would depend on um, what they're coming for. So, like, if if it's online coaching, obviously it's not um, it's not always possible to meet them sort of yeah. immediately. Um, so, again, the, the, the physical assessment of, of how they're moving or, or, or um, you know, other things like that isn't obviously possible. So again, it's it's about trying to find someone who they trust in their area that they can see. Um, but if it's someone who is who is coming in, then like I've used uh, the the FMS functional movement screen for a little while, and um, it's not perfect, and it's to me it's got its issues, but it's something that I can sort of it's a tool, you know, it's something that I can maybe standardize uh, the way I look at people's general movement ability and um i like again 
it's it is just a tool and it's it's one little part of the the process i i look at how they run as well and you know i think the more i've the more experience i get doing that type of thing the more i realize that uh it's a very individual thing and there are certain principles that you should should probably adhere to like if you're if you've got a massive um overstride and and it just looks like a car crash when you run then it might make sense to at least explore the possibility of tweaking that slightly and, and maybe improving it but uh for the most part if you've got quite a few years experience running then you've almost found out the best way for your yourself to run or at least that's the case for yeah. a lot of people you know they've, uh-huh. they've, they're doing the, the important things pretty well and you don't have to do a lot in terms of their, uh-huh. their um, that's not absolutely awesome. agree with that. Absolutely agree with that. There's um, there's quite a famous physio out there who, when he talks about biomechanics, basically says he uses the vomit test. So if he <laughs> looks at someone and it just wants to make him vomit, he tends to try and have a look a bit closer and see if he can change stuff. But as you've said, otherwise, if it ain't broke, he doesn't tend to fix it too much. Yeah, uh, like that because, um, you know, if if someone's coming and they've got no experience of running and they're just getting into it. Then there's there's probably it's like a blank canvas, you know what I mean? They might take really well to a, a particular coaching cue, and they might um, it might just feel really nice, and that's what you're find, trying to find out. Does it feel better? And if it feels better, they're likely to you know take it on board. Whereas if it makes them feel clumsy and and there wasn't really anything that big of a deal in the first place, then why would you change it? You know, it's like a big stress yeah, to deal with then. You know, so yeah. Do you use any software when you're doing the gait analysis stuff? Oh. All I use is I don't have anything fancy. It's just huddle um, technique. It's like uh, coach's yeah. eye or something like that. You know. It's, yeah, it's um, exactly it's exactly what I use. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's quite easy, and and I'm not uh, <laughs> I'm not massive or big on technology, or I'm not very good at it. So um, I try and keep it as simple as possible, and uh, I think it for what I'm doing, it's enough. You know, if if we really want to get um, go really deep with it or whatever then a, a sports physiology lab is probably the place to go on and and deal with it there you know so yeah, yeah. and i think i think i really i really agree with you about the fms before before you came on we were just chatting about hydration and endurance sports and now the pendulum just swings one to the next the two extremes it's either the best thing ever or you shouldn't do it at all yeah. and uh, the fms has been through that sort of journey in the last couple of years and i think it's starting to find that equilibrium now where people exactly as you've said you know it's it's not perfect but it's usable and useful in certain contexts yeah like i think the the thing that um gray cooker the, the guys who are involved with uh, fms would say is it's it's not meant to be a, a diagnosis or a way of me diagnosing you know a problem with someone it's it's a screen it's not a it isn't an assessment as such you know it's um it's just a screen and and again like i'm not a physiotherapist so i shouldn't be trying to say oh well you're you're you know you've got whatever injury it is and you've got it because this the fms says this all i'm trying to do with the fms is right there are certain things that uh you really should be able to do before you run and if you can't do them then it's just a risk factor so maybe we should just see what happens if we improve that particular element um and it's not going to do you any harm to improve it, so let's just improve it. You know, um, that's the way I would use it. And uh, I'm still 
learning and I'm still trying to um you know improve what I do and and I'm I'm far from very far from uh, thinking that I I know everything in fact that probably the more you learn the less you know is that's kind of the way it goes isn't it so, yeah absolutely and I'm sure some of the listeners are probably really keen and inspired from your story to to find out more about your business so where can they find out more about missing link coaching so it's just uh, www.missinglinkcoaching.co.uk and um we're on facebook as well but i tend i'm not very good with uh keeping that up to date so um pretty much everything we do is on the the website and uh yeah we're, we're you know we're it's just a two person thing it's myself and sarah sarah's background is um she has a phd in biogeochemistry so you know a master's in in biochemistry and that's her she she's understands the science probably a little bit better than me and um she's a really she's much more talented runner than i am she's currently flying to zermatt to do the european mountain running championships this weekend and she's what i would consider a proper athlete (laughs) you know i don't see myself like that I, i think um for whatever reason i just i i if i had a choice i would rather be the person going to zermatt to be uh competing in the european mountain ring champs because i just think being able to run that fast you know to be fast enough to kind of compete at those things is just amazing and um i'm not uh i'm not trying to be defeatist or anything but i'm never gonna get there so it's a bit late for me you know at 36 so uh yeah um that's just a kind of a i suppose a segue into what sarah does as well so Perfect. Cool. Fantastic. Uh, Ian, any uh, any last thoughts from you or last question from you? Just to uh, uh, echo what you guys have said in terms of it being an incredible feat of endurance, but also, yeah, the success is obviously uh, being set up by the preparation. You seem to have got everything in place in terms of the strategies, psychology, preparing, getting your team around you, but also the physical preparation as well. And it's getting all those ducks in a line, isn't it? And if you do that, even with something as big as this, then you can be successful. Um, yeah, no, incredible. Yeah, I think the day after you completed the challenge, I sent you a message on Facebook, and one of the things I was just, it was incredible to see how many people it captured, how many people were following it. And I think that was just a combination of, well, one, that it's just such an immense challenge, two, that you were raising money for such a, 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 a an amazing cause, but something which was personal to you as well. Um but I also think that, you know, it's you as well that people were drawn to because, as you said earlier on, Omar, the introduction was so overstated. I think the fact that you are so humble, that's what's made you so endearing to people as well. Um, and, and when a, a messenger said, you know, that I, I'd been in hospital for um, for an operation and uh, when I came around after the uh, anaesthetic, the first thing I did is check my phone and I was telling the nurse all about it and I wanted to see where you were on the dot. And I think it had that much of an impact on, on a lot of people who were so hooked to it. You know, because it was just such an amazing story. So, um, yeah, yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been amazing to talk to you, and I'd, I do hope that your legs, uh, your legs recover quickly. No worries. Can I finish with one little story? Because you've just reminded me of something. Of course you can. Yeah, of course. Uh, you are about, um, you know, people doing all sorts of different things and, and following it from different places, and uh, yeah, just whatever they were doing, they were they were looking at their phones. Well. I, I won't name him, but uh, on one of the final legs, I was just running along, and uh, 
one of the lads comes up to me and says, hey, I've got a bone to pick with you. I was, uh, I woke up this morning and um, I tried to cuddle up to, I won't name her either, the, the missus beside him. Um, <laughs> and he was feeling a bit frisky and uh, she says, oh, one second, I just got to check my phone. And she was checking to see uh, where I was. So he was a bit pissed off that I had ruined his, ruined his morning. <laughs> that's just an of uh, what you were saying, you know, people were uh, preoccupied maybe when they shouldn't have been. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't name names. <laughs> well, th- thanks again, Paul. It's been absolutely great speaking to you. Thanks ever so much for coming on the show. Cool. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Paul. Well, I'm sure you'll agree that's uh, an amazing guest for our first podcast. And, you know, we talk about um, bucket list challenges, but that's a life defining challenge right there. An absolutely incredible achievement. Um, if you could sum things up in a, in, in a few words, uh, Mike, what would your thoughts be? Yeah, it, it always echoes the same feelings I have. When someone walks into clinic with me, the, the success or failure of any event generally is about the preparation, both the physical and the psychological stuff. But these challenges that we follow and we see people do, they don't happen overnight. They, they're months and years in the making and, and, most of us can achieve fantastic things if we put that preparation in. And Ian, what are your thoughts? No, absolutely. I mean, the, the amount of preparation was clear in some of his answers to the questions, but also the amount of effort he'd put into that was clear because he sort of thought of everything. He, he had everything in place beforehand and he thought of every eventuality and planned for it, which you know takes time and effort to do. But that, that's what you need to, to achieve things such as that so yeah impressive yeah it's funny you know but because you're watching through the full six days and you see all the stuff on social media and you follow it on the dot watching and monitoring the progress and it's it's so inspiring but there's that little bit in the back of your brain that just thinks you could do that you could have a go at that and it's a little bit part of my brain i don't really want to speak to very much but it's oh you could you could do that and i wonder now if there's people who've done ultras before or done the bob graham round whether you know, because it's been so highlighted over the last few weeks because of all the attention that Paul's brought to it, whether it might open the door for some people to start uh, attempting this as a more regular challenge. Mike, let's get MDS out of the way first, but do you fancy having a go at this? Ultimately, maybe one day. But I think it's, you know, we've seen it in everything. The the marathons in the 80s were this sort of far-flung aspiration for a few crazy people. Now everybody's doing one. Then the same's happened with Ironman. And yeah, there's no reason, you know, ultra running has become a much more mainstream sport. So um, we'll see about this. What my concern about me having a go was, obviously Paul's tactic was to beat records by cutting down on rest, which would definitely have to be my tactic. <laughs> it would It would be, can I stay awake for six days without stopping? Um, so yeah, we, we'll have to see if we can redo the route and have no rest and no sleep. But that's about my only chance. Yeah, and what about you, Ian? Once you get Lakeland Hundred out of the way, you'll need something else just to focus your attention on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just hope Vicky's not going to listen to this. <laughs> you can imagine if me and Mike, me and Mike as support runners, it'd be doomed for failure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was interesting what he said in terms of using Steve Birkenshaw's timings to give him confidence because he could work towards those. So that ties in very well with what Mike said in terms of, you know, the more people that do it, 
the more re realistic and achievable it seems because you can break it down based on what other people have done. It doesn't seem like this massive thing anymore because people people have broken it down for you. Um, but it is still obviously a massive challenge. Yeah, and, and obviously using Steve Birkinshaw's route, you know, there's a lesson to be learned there, isn't there? If, if something's not broken, don't fix it. And, uh, you know, Steve Birkinshaw, Mr. Navigation himself, if he's plotted a route, it's going to be a pretty good one to, to follow. So, um, well, thanks, boys. I hope you have a great weekend, and I hope the weather's good wherever you are, and I hope your training and preparation goes well. Ian for the 100, uh, and Mike for your MDS uh, preparations for next year. Um, and thanks to those who've been listening to the show today. It's been great to have you, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you soon. If you'd like more details about Paul's coaching, you can go to his website, missinglinkcoaching.co.uk. And if you'd like to follow us, uh, you can follow Mike under The Endurance Physio, and his Twitter is at The Endurance PT. You can follow Ian as Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X, which is MD Sport EX. And you can follow myself under The Endurance Store, which is at Endurance Coach. Have a great week, everyone, and thanks for listening.